0: Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins. Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He will redeem Israel with all their sins. Lord God, we are grateful to hear your word in community, to hear it from the community, and to believe through your spirit that we are connected together. We are grateful to be able to be present, to worship you. And so, God, we pray that we might continue to live in that as we reflect upon your word, remembering who you are, because who you are is what sets us free. So, God, be with us now. Change us so we might become more so the people we were created to be. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. It's uh, not getting less weird, but I'm grateful for the ways that I've heard the entire worship experience has been meaningful for you individually, for you as a family. And I do pray that this time continues to be so. Well, in uh, Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he opens his chapter that reflects on Psalm 130 with the line, to be human is to be in trouble. And after being stuck in a house with their parents these past two days, my kids would give a hearty amen to that. those boys are spending a lot of time in their room. But Peterson is, of course, talking about a trouble that goes beyond losing dessert at dinner. It's the kind of trouble that feels less like a problem to solve and more like something that we just have to endure. And even if this trouble is universal to everyone, it is not an easy thing to to face. Yet to do so, To be able to honestly confess, I am overwhelmed, and I can't do this on my own. That's one of the essential acts of being human. And Psalm 130 is a model for how to do this. It's a framework for coming to terms with the fact that we need help, which is why Psalm 130 has long been a popular passage to engage Lent. Because one of the great hopes of Lent is that each of us comes to see and believe we are invited to call upon God for help. Because God has actually come and offered us the hope to end all hopes. And here at Kairos, that's what we were exploring each Sunday during Lent in small little snippets. But then halfway through our our six-week journey, the the world got hit with a haymaker. And this COVID-19 virus has rocked nearly every aspect of every person's life. And and now, wouldn't you know it, everyone, believer and non-believer, Everyone has gone full Lent mode. The government of all of these secular nations, not Christian nations, secular nations, have literally ordered its people to fast so that one day we might feast. At at Kairos, I'm telling you, we were trendsetters. It is so rather ironic for a pastor like me that the whole world is embracing this Christian theme and yet no one in the world is allowed to go to church. But the point is, these days everyone has come to realize that they're in trouble. Everyone's admitting it. But it all got me wondering, if, if the whole world is in need, Does the whole world express that need in the same way? Is the is the Christian cry for help any different than the non-Christian one? Well, no surprise, I think that there is a difference. It'd be a short sermon if I didn't. I don't I don't think Psalm 130 is the kind of cry that comes naturally to anyone in a tough spot. And that's because for at least one reason, Psalm 130, it was historically sung by pilgrims as they uh, walked up the hill approaching Jerusalem. This was a psalm lifted up by people of faith, which means it it may have been sung out of the darkness that everyone was experiencing, experiencing, but it it was not sung into the void. This kind of cry, it was shouted out of and into the specific story of God. And so this morning, I, I thought it would be good and even important to understand how Psalm 130 is different than some regular old response to desperation. To ask how, as Christians, to ask, how are we equipped? to be in this differently, not only for ourselves, but for our neighbor. And the best way I know to see that difference is to first walk through the normal way we cry for help, and then look at how Psalm 130's cry is is different, and is more hopeful. And so the, the first way that, the normal way that I think most people cry for help is that we ask for something to stop. We we want to be rescued from something. It's a cry for help that is isolated to a specific problem usually, and it's a problem that certainly is affecting us, but it's not normally one that we would see ourselves as personally responsible for. The story of uh, Louis Zamperini, I think, he offers a great example of this kind of cry. His life is the basis of the wonderful book and the horrible movie, Unbroken. But if you haven't read that, or if you've had the misfortune of seeing that movie, uh, during World War II, I'll just catch you up, Zamperini uh, enlisted into the service, and he became a part of a flight crew that ran missions over the Pacific. And on one mission, his plane went down, and, and from the crash only three people even survived well louis he ended up being on the raft for 47 days middle of the ocean just incredible story in and of itself he he beat back like sharks with his bare hands and and grabbed birds and ate them raw just ridiculous stuff but around day 15 with no substantial water for almost six days, even though Louis wasn't much of a religious man, he found himself praying, God, if you quench my thirst, I will dedicate my life to you. He cried out for his thirst to stop, to be, to be rescued, and the next day, rain came, he survived, Louis he eventually floated over 2,000 miles but he was captured by the Japanese he was sent to a POW camp and his journey was not over he ended up being horribly tortured and beaten psychologically tormented it was awful stuff but again he was rescued it was put to an end and when Louis finally was rescued, his only thoughts were, I am finally free. I'm free. It's a dramatic example, but it's one that captures what it means to be rescued and why sometimes that's exactly what we need. For rain to fall, for Louis to be liberated as a POW. For us to be healed from a virus, or for our government to step in with some kind of financial support, these are often good, needed things. They succeed at at making certain horrible things stop. But this kind of answer, when it's the only answer we have, or it's the only one that we seek, it's rarely enough. Our pain may be relieved, but it is rarely transformed. As we mentioned at the beginning, we are never fully free from trouble. It, it just comes back, therefore, by a different name. And because deep down we, we know this, because we experience it, even a cry for help that is answered, it often It becomes a source of cynicism and complaint. A reason why we seek and build idols in our life. I think of Israel in the story of the Exodus. They cry out to God to be rescued from slavery and God rescues them, but as soon as they're in the wilderness, as soon as they think that they need to be rescued again because they don't have enough bread or water, they complain. They want to go back to the way things were. And this is true for us. When all we do is seek rescue for something to stop, what ends up happening is because life continues to be hard, we put up our defenses. We seek ways to feel in control. When we've really had something bad happen to us, we often then will start to demand others join us in the worst case scenario and we get mad when they don't. And we do this because it is exhausting and painful to need to be rescued over and over again. If you've experienced or you know someone who's experienced real trauma, you know how true this is. It doesn't just go away. And it's a hard thing to enter back into. And this is how things went for Louis. Louis, he ended up being rescued. He got home. He got married. He was even a little famous because everyone thought he was dead. But his troubles were not gone. He was not healed. Louis, therefore, he became obsessed with getting revenge with the Japanese people who had tortured him. He numbed his feelings. He became an alcoholic. He He was enslaved by these horrible flashbacks from the war and his marriage crumbled. Again, our lives, they might not look quite as dramatic as that. But I bet we can all relate to the ways it seems our life, it should be producing more peace and joy than it has. Considering the blessings that we have and have experienced in our life, you would think we would be less prone to be an anxious, less obsessed with being in control, less driven to pursue things other than God. And yet we find ourselves in that same boat. But friends, as followers of Jesus, we are not stuck there. Psalm 130 offers us a different form of cry. It is a cry that believes in more than rescue. It is a cry for deliverance. It is to call out to God, deliver me, Lord. Or as the psalmist concludes, it is to ask God for full redemption. Deliverance is not just a bad thing stopping. It's to be brought into something new. It's a prayer that has the courage and the faith to hold two conflicting thoughts together. To be able to, to honestly confess, I'm in trouble. To paraphrase the psalm, this is to realize if this is life, who can survive? Who can, who can thrive? It's to say that, and at the same time, to believe and to claim we worship a God who is for us and with us. Therefore, it's to to ask to to ask God to deliver is to be like Abraham. As Paul writes, it's against all hope. Abraham, in hope, believed. It's to trust God. Is who God says He is. And friends, this is the gift of gospel centered faith it's to cry for what we need out of a belief that it has happened. We need to be delivered, but we pray believing we have been. The psalmist is helpless. Because he needs forgiveness, but almost in the same breath, he proclaims, There is forgiveness with you, God. This is the cry of full redemption. It's the power of claiming out loud the promises of God to not just believe in grace, but to actually stand on it. We don't just wait for new circumstances, we wait for the Lord. We seek mercy, not fixes. Because we believe God joins us in the very depths of our despair with the power of redemption. George MacDonald sums it up well when he writes, The Son of God suffered unto the death. Not that men might not suffer, but that their suffering might be like his. That our troubles might be redemptive, a path to deliverance. How do we do this? I just want to offer three short ways based on the psalm. The first is that we have a courage, the courage to be present, to not run, to not numb, to not even focus on our complaints but to be honest to ourselves and to God instead of dreaming about what would make our life better we name what keeps us from embracing the redemption we believe in and we call upon God in that number two we offer our cries of help up in community This psalm is a public articulation, and it was sung amongst groups of pilgrims. And even if our cries are the exact same words that they would have been alone individually, there is something powerful about offering them in community, about having a group of people that will encourage us and remind us and keep us accountable within them. It's one of the reasons we do prayer requests. This is actually a Sunday where we would normally do prayer requests. And I know often people don't plan to stand up. And yet there is an urge of the Spirit in the room. And so we might not have that exact urge, but I just want to say there is something powerful in asking for help in community. So I encourage you to send in a note to Miriam if you have one of those. Last thing, number three. We are emboldened to act by this kind of cry. The psalmist says, believing in your forgiveness, I am able to serve you, God. And he ends by commanding us to put our hope in the Lord. To act. These actions, they might be small. They might be as small as choosing to wait. Or to rejoice To have the courage to rejoice and to enjoy something good in our life. Even in the midst of other troubles. But no matter what it looks like, we are no longer resigned to being passive. As Richard Rohr boldly claims, because of Jesus and who Jesus has been for us and who Jesus is with us, where you are right now is your best Possible life. This is the truth. Psalm one thirty cries out from, and cries out to. But as I mentioned earlier, Louis Zamperini. He wasn't interested in any of those things or any of those ways, and his life went poorly. But just a couple of days after his his wife informed him that she was going to divorce him, she couldn't take it anymore, their neighbors told Louis's wife about this event that was the talk of the town in Los Angeles. There was this young preacher, barely over the age of 30, that was sweeping the the whole city. People were coming in droves to hear him talk. His, His name was Billy Graham. And they said, you got to come and hear him. And so Louis' wife went, and and her life was changed. She encountered the Lord. And so she went home and said, Louis, I am not going to leave you. But I am going to ask one thing of you. I, I need you to come hear this man speak. And Louis didn't want to go, but he begrudgingly finally said he would. And so he went and and heard Billy Graham preach and a direct line from the sermon that he heard was, Billy Graham said, here tonight, there's a drowning man, a drowning woman that is out lost in the sea of life. And even though it was like those words were spoken just for Louis, all Louis felt was accused All he wanted to do was get out of there. And so when when Billy Graham finished and began his traditional call uh, to invite people to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, saying, and now I want every head to bow and eye to close, Louie, he got up and ran. But his wife, the next day, said, I'm not going to ask you again, but just this one last time, we come and hear him speak one more time. And so again, he went. Again, he heard Louie preach. I mean, uh, uh, whatever his name is, Billy Graham preach. And again, he grew angry. And so when, when Graham asked that every head to bow and eye close, Louis he tried to leave again, bolted. And I don't know if Billy Graham saw what happened the night before or what, but, but this time he was ready. There was, a, there was a man guarding the doors. And Graham said from the pulpit, no one's leaving now. You can leave at any point you want during my sermon, but not now. And as Louis reluctantly turned around, inside that tent, he suddenly felt rain on his face. He was transported back to that day on the raft. And how God came, answered his prayer, and was with him. And Louis, almost outside of his own body, he began to walk up to the stage. And he claimed Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. That flashback of rain was the last one from the war he would ever have. And then here's how the chapter ends that describes those events. The next day, Louis dug out the Bible that had been issued to him by the Air Corps and mailed home to his mother when he was believed dead. He walked down to Barnsdale Park, where he and Cynthia had gone in better days, And where Cynthia had gone alone when he'd been on his benders. He found a spot under a tree and sat down and began reading. Resting in the shade and the stillness Louis felt profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered. But the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that his Japanese tormentors had striven to make him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Friends, this is who our God is. He is a God who delivers. May we not sell him short. May we find the courage in the faith to cry out to him, the one who redeems. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, there is no denying we are people who are in trouble. But it is hard to call out to you. Mostly because we have sold you short. We have believed that you are a God who will swoop in and rescue us from moment to moment. But to live a life like that is too hard. It makes us relive hard moments over and over again to always be fearful that the next moment of pain is around the corner. And yet you are bigger than that. You do not simply pull us out from bad situations, but you, through the cross, have entered into our darkest moments. You are with us and you invite us into new life, into a story of redemption. And so God, we pray that we might believe that truth and learn to cry out to you in that way. And as we approach this table with this bread and this juice and we hear this story that proclaims this very truth, we pray that we might engage it believing this is who you are for us and with us. A God who comes into our pain and delivers. In that grace, Lord, give us the courage and the faith to cry out to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I know many of you have heard from you have missed being able to come to the Lord's table and celebrate the sacrament. And so we're excited to be able to do this. It obviously looks a little different than normal. And so if you didn't know this was coming, I want to encourage you to press pause and go and get some bread and some juice, preferably. But really, anything uh, that you can dip into a liquid is good. You know, when Jesus uh, fed 5,000 people, he didn't say, give me X, Y, and Z. He said, what does that boy have? And he had some fish and some loaves, and that's what he used. And and so we believe that the Lord is present in the practice of this uh, much more than whatever we're physically using. So hey, if you want to have some wine in the morning, this is your Sunday. Uh, So go ahead and get that, and uh, and then we'll come to the table. And we do come... uh, With the same story that we always do. It's the story and the actions of Jesus and our ability to put our trust in this story and in those actions that's what matters and that we are truly participating in. And so hear the good news of God that in the darkest of places, in our most desperate of contexts, this is the story God has told into our lives. For it was on the night of his arrest, in an upper room with his disciples, that Jesus took bread, as I do now in his name, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take it and eat, and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Christ took the cup. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink and do this in remembrance of me. But know that as often as we eat of this bread and we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's saving death. That we do not cry out into some kind of void. We cry out to the God who has come and joined us in our despair and has brought us forth into resurrected life. That's why these are the gifts of God for us, his people. Amen. And so now I invite you to take the bread and, and take a piece off and dip it into the cup or you know, whatever elements you have to do that sort of thing. And if you're with a group of people, to simply offer it to one another, saying, this is the bread of life, broken for you, or some version of that. And this is the blood of the new covenant, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do that, say a prayer, and we'll participate in the sacrament together. And I'm grateful to be able to do it and that the Lord has bound us together through his spirit and his story to proclaim and to experience his goodness. Amen.